Welcome to Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude. I'm Maria Gibson, and this is my mom, Annie Gudger. We're a mom-daughter team who talk about grief. We started this podcast to learn more about grief, to be part of the conversation in normalizing grief. I'm so happy to share with you that my debut memoir just came out this week. It's called The Fifth Chamber. As in, if your heart had a fifth chamber, what would you put in it? It's available wherever you get your books, your local bookstore, on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble. Um, I really hope that you'll check it out. On this podcast, we're bringing you something a little bit different. This is the recording from our Coffee Talk from this September. Coffee Talk is a monthly reading series where five different readers read a grief story. It's a little different than our podcast because normally we interview one person and on Coffee Talk, there's five people who will each read a personal grief story with no interview afterwards. It's done in a live group on Zoom and the link is always posted on our Facebook for the first Thursday of every month for Coffee Talks. So we hope you can come, come join us in the future. The recording that we're bringing to you today is our 50th Coffee Talk. So we hope you enjoy it. Thanks for letting us be in your ears. Welcome to Coffee and Grief. I'm Annie Gudger, and in the square next to me is my beautiful daughter, Maria Gibson. We are so honored that you're here with us tonight. Thank you so much for coming. In the chat, we'd love to know where you're Zooming in from, how many coffee talks you've been part of, if it's your first, if you've been here for several. And I always got to say, Ann Richardson, who's been here now for number 48, I'm pretty sure, out of 50. And that is amazing. That is just amazing. Um, this is our 50th coffee talk. And if we were in person, I would have cupcakes for you. I was thinking about that today. Like this just feels really big. You know, when we started this, we had no idea what was going to happen and how long it would be happening. And we started at the beginning of the pandemic and everyone was sheltering and looking for something to do and how to connect. And my daughter had this brilliant idea. Like, how about if we get people telling their grief stories? And that is really how it started. And here we are all these years later and at number 50. And that just, oh, that just thrills me. Um, we've had readers and listeners from all time zones in the States, from New Zealand, the UK, Vietnam, and Mexico. It's part of why we love doing this on Zoom. Um, people have asked us if we do it in person. And I'm like, probably not because we don't, we wouldn't have the same reach. And that's a beautiful thing about it. Uh, so as I said, this is our 50th coffee talk and we have had 250 readers since March of 2020. We created Coffee Talk because we believe in public grief. Everybody grieves in small circles and large circles. Collective grief touches all of us. We want to give voice to we want to give voice to public grief and not just the hard parts, the transformational parts too. This community was created as a space to talk about things we don't always take the time to talk about. Since we started, we've heard grief stories about death of parents, siblings, friends, and pets. We've heard stories about dementia, loss of youth, loss of jobs, infertility, the pandemic, politics, society, loss of health, and loss of self. We've witnessed how humans can connect to each other through grief and through stories. Grief is one of life's certainties. Grief is the great equalizer through so many aspects of life. We're just super honored that you showed up here tonight, whether it's your first time or your 50th time. So obviously we're on Zoom because you made it here, uh, but how it will work is you'll be on mute until the very end. So if you wanna clap in your box, you could clap or clap or clap, or you can use the chat to throw some love to the readers, um, or you can use a little hand reaction thingamajiggers. I don't know how they work. Uh, yeah. Oh, I guess I should put the page over on the right page. There you go. Uh, we do ask that you turn your camera off if you're doing other things right now and listening, but if you're engaged, we'd love to see your face in your camera. My biggest grief was being widowed when I was 28 and pregnant with Maria's older brother. Everything in my world changed, eventually for the good, and that took time. Eventually there was Scott, my amazing husband, and then we had Maria, our beautiful daughter. I'm fond of saying that grief is the source of my superpowers. It's where I learned to not take time for granted. It's where I learned compassion and love in a bigger, deeper way. It's where I learned to be a beauty seeker, a joy seeker. 
I wrote my way through grief. What was a huge stack of journals eventually turned into a book. And I'm so happy to tell you this beautiful book, The Fifth Chamber. Yay, thank you all. It's pub date is Saturday, this Saturday. So you can get it wherever you get your books. And I would be so honored if you did. Uh, for me, I was raised by my mom who was grieving. Grief was very normalized in our home. Uh, it's something that I've realized that isn't so normal in society. And so I was pretty lucky to be raised that way. Uh, the past few years, I've realized that when we don't share our griefs, they become secrets and tear people up. But in sharing them, we can connect on a deep human level. Uh, the past couple of years, I've lost multiple people in my life, including two grandparents and several horses and cats. I feel many lives, many lives, many deaths in my life have been major benchmarks in how I view the world. Uh, our Facebook community is the Coffee and Grief community, and there's a private group we'd love to have you in. You could share your creative works and parts around grief. We'd love to see them in there. Any of your own photography, songs, uh, writing, grief interpretations, we'd love to see it in that group. We would invite you to promote yourself, just not any services you're actually selling. So links to published pieces, your website, Instagram, Twitter. There's not Twitter anymore. We need to update this. Um, that's all cool. Uh, so for tonight, we actually have a lot of uh, exciting things coming and announcements we're going to make, and then we'll pop into our readers. Uh, so these are the coffee talks. Our next one will be October 5th at 7 p.m. They're always the first Thursday of every month. And the link is on the Facebook page because it changes every month. Uh, yeah, we have a podcast now called Coffee and Grief. No, what's it called? Grief and Gratitude uh, right now. And it's anywhere you can get your podcasts. There, uh, We have 20 episodes and they're around 30 minutes. They're a conversation with a single person about their grief story and they're really fabulous. Yeah, I, I've learned a lot through doing them in the past 20 episodes, and we look forward to continuing to do them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've loved, I've learned so much. I've learned so much through all of this. Um, so we also, we invite you to join us on September 13th for a free writing session. It'll be on Zoom. It's at noon. The link is on our Facebook page. Maria may have put it in the chat. I'm not quite sure. We'd love to have you come write with us. If you come do that free, it will give you an idea of our 30-day writing group that starts again in October. Um, and that will just like give you a little taste of it. In the 30-day the group, we've held it a number of times now. It's been this beautiful experience. There are people here who have participated in it. Um, people have told us that it has helped them set their grief story down and experience it in a different way. So if you'd like an opportunity to rewrite your grief story, Check that out. Um, that link is also in the chat and it's on our Facebook page and it's on my page. We try to have it everywhere. We try to make it easy for you. Um, it's really a beautiful experience and we love doing it. Um, those are our big announcements. And then so back, so getting ready for tonight, here's the format. We have five readers, each reading a grief story. At the end, as Maria said, like feel free to clap, snap, whatever it is you'd like to throw them some love. Um, I always say, I don't know what they're, we don't know what they're going to be reading tonight. Um, I don't ask for pages ahead of time. So you might hear some hard things. What I do know is the right readers are here with the right words for you. And I realize you were, yeah, um, we don't take a break. So take a break. If you, so if you're so inclined to do that, um, we'll unmute you at the end. And I always say part of the joy for me in doing this is that I love to be read too. And I hope you do too. So with that, grab your coffee, mine is tea, whatever beverage, and let's talk. And let's switch pages. All right, our first reader this evening is Kate Carol DeGudis. Kate Carol DeGudis used to travel with her band in a converted white school bus across the US, Canada, and Europe. They played in exciting locations such as Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Waterford, Ireland, and Cylinder, Idaho, Iowa, excuse me, population 67. When Kate's band rolled through Cylinder in 1981, the mayor decided the band should kick off the town centennial two years early 
because how often does a California folk band show up in Cylinder, Iowa? The band played at dusk in front of the grain elevator. As the sun sank lower, hundreds, possibly thousands, of mice ran out from the all-you-could-eat buffet of the grain elevator and across the feet of the musicians. Kate increased the tempo of the show and decided right then that writing seemed like a better career. Please welcome Kate. Thank you, Annie and Maria. I am so happy to be here for Coffee Talk 50. I know what a production it is to do this every month, and I'm grateful to come back and read again. I am not reading a traditional grief story about dead parents or divorce or demented parents. Um, I am reading about the grief of the wrong clothes. The only thing you need to know about this piece is it was for, it's a flash piece for an anthology and the writers were writing to pictures. So I was writing to actually a picture of myself. This is called Girl by Default. Four blonde girls, wavy tresses cascade to the shoulders of two of them. They wear white gloves, not visible in this photo. One is outfitted in impossibly white sandals. The other girl's spotless white knee socks slouched towards her ankles and her black patent leather Mary Janes. The youngest child sits barefoot on the glider where some mother or grandmother or aunt has posed all four for the photo labeled on the back in blue ink, July 4th, 1968. The girl who looks straight at the camera has hair not much longer than it will be 55 years later when every four weeks, she gets a non-binary cut with clippers at the queer barbershop within walking distance of her house. She is girl by default, girl by the fact of her dress, which matches the other three, and the bow taped into her hair by her mother. There is no mistaking this child's gender. Her PF flyers, designed to help kids run faster, jump higher, one white canvas, look gray in this photo. On this day, no white anklets trimmed in lace favored by the girl's mother. For some reason, her mother has tied the damp shoes onto bare feet, sparking right then a lifelong aversion to shoes without socks. I remember feeling the bottoms of my feet pruning up in those shoes, remember the stifling humidity that exacerbated the discomfort between my toes, Worst of all, I remember the fabric of the matching navy blue dresses. The complex textured structure of the twill actually made it tougher even than the shoes I wore. My three and a half year old self felt how stiff the fabric was the moment my mother pulled the dress over my head. The bodice and armholes chafed the delicate skin at the front of my armpits and rubbed raw my tiny nipples. The flared skirt spread around me when I finally sat on the glider, but then my legs stuck to the slats. My wife, who's in a square down to my right, calls me her special snowflake. So many environmental factors affect me. Scented laundry detergent makes me sneeze and causes an immediate headache. Soy products bloat my belly and lead to uncontrollable gas. Air fresheners, swell my eyes shut and trigger wheezing and whining. Gluten pimples my arms in tiny white bumps and creates some internal chemical brew resulting in weird body odor. Starch produces hives bordering on welts wherever it touches me. My sensitive system struggles. I'm projecting, I know, when I look at this picture, I see a child who wants to jump off and out of the frame a kid who begged her mother 10, 20, maybe 30 minutes earlier to be excused from wearing the hot, heavy dress. That the dress matched the others only added to my misery, I'm sure. But that might simply be more projection. What I know for certain is that even at three and a half, this outfit didn't square with my self-image. So even though a slight smile plays across that tiny face, even though my eyes are bright and engaged with the photographer, 
I believe that kid wanted to return to wherever it was that left the mud stains on her knees and shins. Why didn't my mother wash off my legs? Perhaps she cared less than I remember that her firstborn mostly refused to dress like other girls, preferred to play alone rather than with the girls in white gloves. My mother had a great ability to let kids be kids up to a point, age nine or so. Then she expected me to follow social, social cues, expected me to look like a girl, even purchased candies, shoes, and a sleeveless aqua polyester dress for my junior high graduation. She left me to figure out how to ascend and descend the stage stairs in backless three-inch heels. In the second photo, taken a moment before or a moment after this one, the girl sits in the middle of the bench, her arm casually reaching out towards the arm of the glider, self-contained amid the girly chaos, head cocked to the right side even then, considering what? Perhaps the twill and canvas in her future, Carhartt cor chore coats and logger jeans, white canvas Jack Purcell sneakers, so much more butch than the daintily tapered PF flyers in the picture. Nine years later, her father will take her back to school shopping and buy her a 1970s style pair of navy blue Keds with red and orange racing stripes across the toes. Very obviously a boy's shoe. But her father won't argue when she picks them out. He'll just ask the store owner to make sure they fit correctly. Later that day, her mother puts the sneakers still in their box on the top shelf of the girl's closet. It doesn't occur to the girl that her mother meant to return them to the children's bootery, the small shoe store in their new Northern California hometown. But before she can, the child puts them on and sneaks out of the house and down to the creek. Careful, she believes, not to get the white rubber edges of the shoes dirty. But once home, she sees her mistake. Even soap and water can't remove the ochre dust of a California summer. She takes care as she wraps the shoes in their tissue and puts them back on the shelf in her closet. She forgets about them. Forgets until her mother takes down the box and inspects the no longer new shoes. Fury fills her mother's brown eyes. The kids cannot be returned. Her mother doesn't say this. Instead, she says, well, they'll just have to wear dirty shoes the first day of school. But that's okay. At least they're the right shoes. And the girl wears them almost every day with socks, real socks not the polyester ones with lace on them. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. That's fabulous. Thank you. Right. And we don't usually comment on people's pieces, but I, I love how it wasn't a traditional grief, which is one of the things we wanted to expand the conversation around what is grief, because it definitely was grief, but it's not as you opened with the death of a beloved. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. All right. Our next reader tonight is Patricia Haroldson. After retiring from teaching English at a community college, Patricia Haroldson writes a weekly column for an entertainment, entertainment publication in Northern California, where she lives with her spouse, Cindy. Since 2007, she has published three nonfiction books. Her 15 grandkids will tell you she's great helping with homework or recommending a book, but not really playful. Her pleasure time is spent at master's swim practice, yoga, and hiking on BLM land near her home. She's scrambling to finish the first draft of a memoir. Working title, Whatever Happens, I'm Fine. A case study, of marriage and family, a description of intergenerational addiction, a story about pain and medicine, treatment and lifestyle, essentially a love story. Uh, her books will be on our Facebook page. If you wanna look her up there, I'm sure she'd love to connect with you. So let us welcome, Patricia. 
Thank you, Maria, and thank you, Annie. Um, it's a privilege to take part in Coffee Talk 50. I'm a newcomer. I watched the live program last month and several recorded shows since then, and I am truly impressed by the depth of feeling, the level of intimacy, and the quality of writing that I've heard. So, um, so here's my humble contribution to the excellence that I've seen this reading program attract. The piece is called Eyesight. The strangest thing happened, I said, as I walked through the door. Hello to you too, said my spouse, Cindy. Hi, honey, sorry. Cindy'd been schooling me in greeting and leave-taking for years. I want to tell you what happened. Tell me, she said. All the way down Rawhide Road, I saw these flashes of light in my peripheral vision. Really? That's kind of scary. Scary? What do you mean? That's what happened to Morgan when she had a detached retina. Oh, yeah, I said, thinking about our friend who'd had emergency eye surgery. I don't know. This doesn't feel like that. Photopsia, the ophthalmologist said. It's a common vision disturbance as we age. I was 63 at the time. Tiny fibers float in the vitreous fluid at the back of your eye, he continued. They get pulled or rubbed and cause light sparks from the friction. The flashers continued to come for years, but I never mentioned them again to Cindy or anyone. They came on the darkest nights when there was no moon or when clouds obscured the stars. Flash, I'm Buster. I felt rather than heard the greeting. Buster, my baby brother who never drew a breath. I rolled down the windows and let air waft into the car, pungent with tarweed and cow manure. I let myself listen with all my senses. Hot air brushed my skin. Twinkle, I'm not alone. The skin on my forearms prickled. He's not alone. Months before, the sparkles had transformed in my mind to little ones who had not survived. Though I'd thought of the lights as the unborn for a while, this was the first time I'd sensed one speaking. I didn't greet the buster light. Nor had his leave-taking been visible to me when I was eight and my mother delivered a stillborn baby. During that time, there were two other deaths, my grandfather and my best friend's father. I remember going to a funeral at a military cemetery, after which my friend, her sister, and I played tag, hopping across graves while adults gathered in clusters. My grandfather had lived in Arizona, which is probably why I didn't go to his funeral. I want to say my mother went, but I don't remember. My parents planned to name my brother Robert after my grandfather and call him Buster after my friend's father. Spark, I'm Buster. Hey there, I said this time. Flare, I'm Ben. A soft breeze passed over me. Hello, I said aloud. They came together, the brother who had never breathed and the son I had miscarried. They'd been worlds apart in my life, but were together on this dark road. I don't know if they'd ever existed in the same thought before. I grinned, picturing two naked babies, arms draped over their shoulders, toddling ahead of me. Flash, twinkle, glow. Three lights bloomed in succession. I knew instantly they were the ones lost through abortion who might've become members of my family. Nameless souls, secret losses. The three paraded together, but didn't speak. Their lights were strong and furious. Hello, I said, determined to let them know I saw them. When I thought about these three, it was with confusion and what ifs. What would be different if they had grown up in my family? Would their mothers have married different men? What conceivable trajectory never happened because they weren't here? For several weeks, they danced in the pasture, gaily and full of fire. Each time they came, I greeted them. Hi, I shouted, rolling down the car window. I see you. Thanks for being here. I had no idea why I thanked them. I was just relieved by their fluttering sweetness. They licked the darkness with festivity, which delighted me. They were my secret. I never felt theirs was my story to tell, though I was part of the story. I'd been the caretaker, driver, procurer of the appointment, and once insisted on the procedure. I'd been the one who brought heating pads for cramps, filled prescriptions for pain meds, told fibs to enable days of rest. 
I had held the secrets for years. I'd been a willing and sad accomplice. Joining the boys and the genderless terminated ones were two more. Girls who had lingered in the womb. There was Tenacious J, a granddaughter, who clung to life without amniotic fluid for 21 weeks. And Autumn, a great-granddaughter, whose heartbeat disappeared at 11 weeks, but who remained in her nesting place for six more. I remember the mothers of these girls spending grief-filled days waiting to bring them lifeless into the world. The unborn in my family are scattered across generations, fluttering like undulating flames. Up on the flat stretch of road, I enjoyed the play of light from these sprites, their sparkling Roomba, scintillating hopscotch. But then I turned onto the spur that took me home, a winding road that descended into a canyon, partially filled by a reservoir. The lake was a large, dark patch with no reflection. This was the place where the unborn hid when not exploding like fireworks on my periphery. I knew the way well, but I didn't know what I'd find down there. We weren't hiding, said a nameless one. We like the dark, said Ben. It's cozy warm, said Tenacious J. And unperturbed, said Autumn. We birthed in dark, womb-warm eternity, said Ben. But the light, I whispered. Our playground, our dance, our parade, our festival, the little one sang, an orchestra of sympathetic joy. Are you babies? Not exactly. We're more like vitality. At 74, I sensed a thinning of the veil to the other side. The unborn let me know they were never extinguished. They flitted through gauzy darkness, whispering into my vision. I'd forgotten, but they wished to be remembered. Or did I wish to remember? To hold them dear? To hear them twinkling with glee? I pulled into my driveway, turned off the car, and sat still. I had forgotten and remembered, been surprised and delighted. I dipped into a dark canyon, felt the ongoing vitality of the unborn, and realized how they became a part of my family in ways I hadn't comprehended, as memories, as secrets, as direction changers, as teachers. I pushed open the car door and stepped out. Looking up, I let my breath diffuse into the silence, the vast dark space where they exist. Wow, Patricia, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was just beautiful. And again, like some a, a grief story we hadn't heard before. So thank you. Our third reader this evening is Lisa Arnoni. Lisa is a first wave, a first wave lesbian who is the mother of two macho sons and the daughter of a first-generation Italian father who she refers to as a Buddhist thug. She lives and works in New York, New York City as a psychotherapist in private practice. As a native New Yorker, she says that she can find connection anywhere, everywhere, and has opinions, read expertise about everything. Please welcome Lisa. Hi. I'm a little nervous. So I've been told by Katie Gwynn, who I talked to about my writing, that this is a palimpsest, which is a hard word to say. <laughs> so I'm just going to say that. And it's called The Heart is a Muscle. In high school, I had an assignment to retell an Edgar Allan Poe story, the Edgar Allan Poe story. Poe story, The Telltale Heart. I told the story of a man who had every physical symptom experience of his wife's pregnancy from morning sickness through labor and delivery. I think it started out as a strange but not unwelcome connection and ended for him as a nightmare of searing pain and hours long undulations in response to something inside that needed to be thrust out the inside and the outside of him almost one until the delivery of a small infant. I remember the room as a paradise. I am floating, suspended in fluid, the very same temperature as me. 
I am held snugly by the walls of the uterus, surrounded in every way by whatever I need. We are seamlessly in union. All that I need is delivered to me simultaneous to my needing. There is harmony between need and satisfaction. This means need does not exist. Everything is synchronized. I am an integral part of the body I inhabit. All is right with my world. At two years old, my son would lope along singing a tune generated by his very being while I was both with him and watching him with unfathomable delight. I would take one 15 second video after another, trying to capture the lilting experience on my flip phone. 15 seconds was all you got back in 2006. Still 15 seconds at the time was a miraculous gift. The first day I dropped him off at preschool was one of the worst days of my life. He had been primed for the moment with stories about things he had no experience to understand. He had never been left anywhere or with anyone that did not love him completely. I walk around the school with him. I sit with him as he gets started on some preschool work. Soon the teacher says to me, you can leave him here now. Raphael looks up, not one to miss a beat and comes to me. I start explaining, Mama's going to work and I will be back to get you soon. What does soon feel like to a two-year-old? He starts to cry and grab for me and the teacher gives me her stock spiel. It's okay, you can go. He will be fine once you're gone. He will calm down and have fun, don't worry. I'm gingerly removing his hands from mine, creating a small distance between his body and mine so I can walk away. I have to break eye contact, turn around and walk out the preschool door. I'm being held in place by sludge. I move each leg as if the weight of knee-high mud is anchoring it. I honestly do not know if I can reach the door. I am repeating. He will be okay when I leave. He will calm down and have fun. I can still hear him as I descend the stairs to the street. When the outside door closes, I have one moment of reprieve from the sounds of his grief. I look up at the window to see if he has come to wave goodbye and he is there. So he is the very picture of tormented loss. Hands flat against the window, tears and snot, yelling without being heard. Mama, come back. Mama, don't go. Mama. Seeing him plastered there is a blow that near knocks me down. My job is to smile and wave goodbye, to walk happily away with confidence that he will be all right. It takes all of my strength not to tear back into the building and carry him away with me forever. Instead, I follow the prescribed action. I walk, I turn, walk to my car, and with one last smiling wave, I get into the car. He is still there at the window, weeping and wailing, probably on his way to resignation. I know this is all unimaginable to him. The moment I'm inside the car, I explode into tears. It is one of the most wrenching cries. I am sobbing, caning, head in hands, not knowing how to leave that spot. When my hands are steady enough and I am able to take shallow breaths, I start the car and pull away. I will lament those minutes for the rest of my life. They scar my heart. Even as they are being unyieldedly coaxed through the vaginal canal, being expelled along with their lovely, warm, silky amniotic fluid into a world of sensory overload, an infant seeks some familiar envelopment, 
the seeking of connection begins as a requirement of actual survival and after ever as a requirement of emotional survival. The brain, the nervous system needs caresses and eye contact, soothing sounds and copious opportunities to suck. Sensory input is essential to a development. Contact is sucre. The seeking of connection is an untold story. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's Thank beautiful. You. I love that you read a palimpsest. It's one of my favorites. Thanks. Thank Our next reader tonight is Joelle Coto Willard. Joelle is the owner of JCW Coaching and Consulting, as well as an entrepreneur who has over 10 years of experience as regional director of leadership training company in Western Canada. She is quadrilingual and a global citizen. When her second son, Julian, died six months into her pregnancy with him, she was thrust into a world of deep grief and loss. Her life was devastated and she felt completely shattered, yet the world continued on without her. In her lost journey, she's also seen a tremendous need for the non-grievers and support system of the bereaved to have resources that allow them to heal or allow them to feel useful, purposeful, and supportive when their loved ones are living out the worst days of their lives. If you love someone who has lost a child and feel confused, worried, and paralyzed by it, she is here for you too. She also has a podcast called The House of Mourning. Let us welcome, where are you, Joe? There she is, Joelle. Hello, thank you. I'm gonna be reading a Po a blog post from my blog also called the house of mourning and this is titled i'm not looking forward to christmas i'm sitting here contemplating how to include julian in our family christmases and it sucks i love christmas since Julian died in May, I've pretty much dreaded most celebrations, gatherings, and holidays. So far, Christmas is feeling the heaviest. I have heard about this feeling from other lost families out there, and it never occurred to me how or what I wanted to do for our son in terms of creating our own traditions. But one thing I know is that myself as a mother who has lost a child, anytime there is a visual, verbal, or written expression of my family unit that does not include my baby Julian who passed, I feel extremely uncomfortable. From what I have seen so far in the last seven months in the perinatal loss community, I fall into the majority. Not that I need other people's preferences to validate my own. It just helps me understand what I'm feeling within the context of our lived experience is normal. Ever since I gave birth to my baby who had died the day before, this loss experience has been extremely traumatic. It's like I have been privy to such a life-shattering event, and yet there is no socially accepted protocol of how to interact with families who have lived this, families like mine. Something that I hear a lot of is this undeniable feeling of an unintentional, and also intentional at times, desire to erase our babies who have passed away. It feels like this societal conditioning that isn't spoken, that is very felt. The message is, your baby died. 
they don't count. Like literally, we don't count them, you know, in the family count. They didn't make it. They didn't matter. Our babies who died won't get birthdays, birthday parties, birthday presents, Christmas presents. Most times their names don't get written down or spoken out loud. As a mother who grew, birthed, and met my baby, right before having to say goodbye to him and have him cremated, knowing that people won't be honoring him in most ways doesn't sit right. So many families feel a tremendous amount of pressure to honor their babies and create a permanent space for them to take up because they know that if they as the parents don't do this, their baby's memory and life will be erased in the eyes of society. It's a heavy load to carry on, on top of the trauma and grief that already comes with losing a child. The question also trickles down to the closest family members. Will the grandmother count her child, who, her grandchild who has passed? Will she answer, I have seven grandchildren, six living and one in heaven? Does the baby make the count for aunties and uncles? Will they share about their niece or nephew who died? Will the baby be honored by people outside of the nuclear family or forgotten like a secret swept under the rug? One of the most dreaded questions for a family like mine is how many children do you have? It's this seemingly harmless and connecting question that, well, everyone asks, right? Right. The problem with this question is that most parents who have lost a child genuinely struggle with how to respond. The thought process I've most encountered is, well, if I encounter a total of stranger, then I'll say, hmm, I have one, which to me feels like lying. Simply to avoid sharing such private details of my life. And yet, in different occasions, maybe if it's someone we genuinely feel more connected to and want to build a relationship with, then maybe in that instance, we count our other child. I'm working on my practice of answering truthfully all the time. I was recently asked this question and I responded, I have two sons, one in the sky and one earth side. And that's all I could muster without becoming completely paralyzed. And as I write this, I am in the midst of sorting out how to show up for my angel baby, Julian, as much as I show up for my older living son, Axel. And I think daily about how old Julian would be and how his older brother would be interacting with him. I've had vivid dreams in the last couple of months that Julian is living and I'm holding him in my arms. What we have come up with so far is that we will be having birthday parties for the little guy every year. What will they look like? We have zero capacity to sort that out right now. And we have the rest of our lives to figure it out. We'll be including Julian in our family Christmas. He'll have a Christmas stocking, just like his brother. And as well, we'll be buying him gifts. The only difference between his gifts and his brother Axel's are that his will go onto his altar next to his tiny urn filled with ashes. That is all we have left of our boy. I have been quite vocal about asking for people to call our family a unit of four and to always include our son Julian in our count. And now 
I'm choosing to do the emotional labor that comes with expressing our family's needs to honor him as part of the family going forward. Wishing things weren't this complicated and doing all we can to keep putting one step in front of the other. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. As I've said to you before, like that's just so beautiful and raw and a story that people, that other people have. And I so appreciate you being willing to share it and speak about it and come here. And um, I was thinking about uh, something that I've heard and that I'm now practicing instead of asking someone how many children that they have is to just say, tell me about your family. Right. And so I just want to share that with you all tonight. If that's something you haven't heard before, it's a, it's a, it's a much more tender way instead of just the thing that that automatic question of how many kids, like, tell me about your family. And that opens a door to people. So thank you. Looking for my Kleenex. Oh, right. Our final reader this evening is Elena Earhart. Elena is a mixed race artist based in Seattle, Washington. Her mediums of filmmaking, photography, and writing are guided by her conviction to celebrate the bold, brave, and tender truths that make us human. She is steadily developing the manuscript of her memoir, An, in an Interrogation of Emotional Inheritance, intergenerational assimilation and finding her inner light in an implausible place. She has a penchant for wind chimes in minor keys and collecting ambient voice me memos in faraway places. Her life's quest is to find a small batch perfume that smells precisely of a pixie dust murmuring at twilight. Please welcome Elena. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. This is my second time reading for this extremely special community. And I just want to thank Annie and Maria for continuing to open the door to all of us. Um, no questions asked. Can't believe it's already been 50. So the honor is even more so to be able to celebrate that with you all. Um, I wrote this piece this summer on the saddest day of my life. And I'm going to try really hard not to cry, but I'm already crying. Um, <clears throat> we sit on this porch, you and I, you in a cobblestone sunbeam, me against the arbor. These are our final hours together in this plane. The one where I sing you songs too high for my range, but you curl into my guitar all the same. The one where the wisteria we planted three springs ago still hasn't flowered, but that's okay. Because this porch and this garden are wild with life and sanctuary. And I can't imagine a more righteous farewell. One of blue skies, bird song, bee, and butterflies. I can hear your bones knock the cedar steps as you climb to shade. You are now grotesquely all skin and bone, all angles and edges. Still, you hold on. And I love you for that, sweet boy. I savor every single second. But lately, watching the tired rise and fall of what's left of your body, the truest parts of me wish you'd simply let go. So I didn't have to. Help me clean up this quality of life calculus looming around the corner of every moment. Because I live to be loved by you to feel steadied by your perfect placement in puzzle piece proximity. These fluffy details sound trite. Yes, you are by definition a pet, but you exceed nouns, analogies, language, time. Your trust has gravity, conditionless and enduring, and it has nourished me ever since the day I brought you home when I was 19. From you, I found the golden ticket to my adult life full of whimsy, warmth, and weirdness. From you, all peridot and pink, wispy and angelic, every insufferable day was made a survival story. From you, I became the woman my family will never know I could be. 
And whatever I lacked of emotional resilience, you carried on your free floating shoulders with an effortless strength as intrinsic as the breath that unites us. I'm nearly 35 and I will have many more bad days in your absence. Ones that will test my will, ones that will riot with longing. I fear them. Already I feel confined in the aloneness of mourning, though I know I am held in the hearts of a village. You see, I know death and grief accompanying, but I cannot fathom my life without you. And yet I am hours away from knowing that too. Your love is the axis, the epicenter, the womb, and I will wash myself in platitudes and affirmations, run off into the mountains to make movement a mechanism. I will erect a shrine, a monument, a reliquary, adorn them with crystals and chamomile and photographs I've memorized, and this life will never be the same. No one could ever truly know, but we do, Mikey Valentine. This love, it was here. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is definitely a teary, a teary one for me in a good way. I always appreciate that the just the true honest words that that just land on my heart. Oh, man. Ooh. So in our closing, we just all we're just like so thankful for all of you for being here. Thank you for the readers for sharing your beautiful words and your beautiful hearts. And thank you to all the listeners for showing up. This is uh, this we wouldn't have this community without both parts and um, people who have, are here for the first time. We hope you'll come back. Um, the recording will be posted on our page if you want to share it with other people too. But it truly is just an honor. I always say it's an honor to witness someone else's grief, and I I mean that with every fiber of my body. And I we get to do that here. So so thank you so much for that. Um, whew. Uh, you can find our readers on our page. You can reach out to them there if you'd like to. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to be a reader, please reach out to us. Our next coffee talk will be number 51 on October 5th at 7 p.m. And as I said early on, my book is released this Saturday. You can find it any place you get books. Um, I will be reading with my dear friend Kate, who read tonight. Um, at Broadway Books on September 18th in Portland, Oregon. So if you are within driving distance and oh, that's so nice, Carol, and can come be part of that, that would just, that would make me so happy. I'm already doing my happy dance constantly. Um, I'm going to wear myself out by the time the 18th gets here, but it, it's just a lot of joy and so much to celebrate. Um, yeah. So please come back, invite your friends, be part of this. We love having you. It's been a pure joy. And I always like to finish by saying, be kind to yourself, be kind to your heart, drink plenty of water, do something kind for yourself. And if you have the bandwidth, do something kind for another. We love you.